Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 to 33. Instructions for Christian households. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the saviour. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Amen. Thanks, Joy. I want us to begin this morning by thinking a bit about our own significant relationships. Have a think about those people that you've been in relationship with this week. It might be a husband or wife, a close friend, a brother or sister, nephew, niece, parent. I wonder what those relationships have been like this week. Have they been chaotic? Have they been life-giving? If you're honest, have you been a bit selfish in relationship this week? Have you felt loved? Have you served those close to you during the week? Maybe you felt used or you felt hurt this week in your relationships. Maybe this week has been a lonely week for you. I want us to just hold those thoughts about our relationships uh, in mind as we think through this passage from Ephesians 5, and we'll come back to that later on. So we might hear this passage uh, from Ephesians 5, 21, grab it uh, on your um, iPad or phone or Bible if you've got one uh, to hand, uh, uh, and we might hear this passage being read and immediately think, well, this has got nothing to do with relationships today, but it does. Paul is challenging us in this passage to live out our relationships in a post, with a post-resurrection perspective. And it's a message here that's as relevant to us today, here in Edinburgh in 2017, as it was to the Christians in Ephesus 2,000 years ago. This passage is all about living out radical love, radical relationships, and radical reconciliation. I don't know if you can remember as far back as last Sunday, uh, but in last week's sermon, Dave was uh, reminding us uh, about those verses just before this in Ephesians 5, where Pauling is challenging us to live distinctly different lives from the culture that we find ourselves in. 
And it's a bit of a tricky call to do that. But we don't have to do it in our own power. And so we heard uh, that actually we can live these distinctly different lives through the power of the Holy Spirit in us. We need to be filled every day with the Holy Spirit to live these radically different lives. And this radical transformation that the Holy Spirit does in us doesn't just stop in ourself, but starts to ripple out to, to the whole of life, including our relationships, our homes, and our marriages. And that's where we are in Ephesians 5, verses 21 to 33, where Paul starts to lay down some guidelines for wives and husbands. Now, if you're not in our husband and wife relationship, don't just switch off now, thinking this is irrelevant, because this is important stuff. There are some incredible principles here which are relevant to all relationships. So let's understand a little bit uh, more about how relationships in the household would have been in first century Ephesus. What we call the Adam and Eve household structure had been dominant in traditional Judaism and also in many parts of the pagan world uh, uh, that the early church was speaking into. This Adam and Eve uh, structure of household was based on the premise that in Genesis, Eve came second and was made for man, for Adam. Therefore, Adam, as man, is the greatest and most powerful and closest to God's image, and woman is weak, easily tempted, and second. Uh, this belief supported a patriarchal structure of oppression, inequality, and forced submission in, in the household during this time. This was the basis on which the majority of households had been organised. And it was the norm. And it's always difficult to go against the norm. And remember too, the household was important to the early church. We leave our homes and we come here to church. We come to this building. But in the first century, there were blurred lines because the home was the place of worship and missionary activity. The public and the private spaces were merged. So this can help us to understand why in all Paul's letters to the early Christians, there is a prominence of teacher, teaching about order in marriage and the home because these were the contexts for the church's worship and mission. And so here in Ephesians 5, we find Paul encouraging a radical transformation of household structures based on relationships modelled on Christ, rather than this patriarchal structure of society which had been modelled on Adam and Eve. This was a radical change from the norm, believe it or not. All through this passage, Jesus is the model for relationships. Verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence to Christ. Verse 23, the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is saviour. Verse 24, as the church submits to Christ, so the wives submits to their husbands. Verse 25, husbands love your wives as Christ loves the church and gave himself up for her. And it goes on. Jesus' relationships to the church Jesus' relationship to the church is relevant here for our, for our understanding of human relationships. So what are the features of that relationship? Well, firstly, we see complete self-abandoning love. Through the life and the teaching and the ministry of Jesus, we see no indication at all of anything 
but love, acceptance and respect for women and men. There is no sense of him promoting a culture where men are superior to women, but rather Jesus subverts and challenges a culture which does anything to place, uh, to undermine the place of women or in fact any oppressed group in society as he brings in the kingdom of God. And Paul is speaking all about the church too, and the church is described as the bride, uh, the bride of Christ, basically the wife of the king. And on the cross, Jesus, Jesus gave himself totally and utterly for her, for the bride, his body broken out of total self-abandoned love so that his people could be saved and could be free. On the cross, Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The answer to that question came in Christ's resurrection. God abandoned himself. He came to die in order to bring victory over death. And so fulfilling his purpose to restore humanity to relationship with God. God is in the business of relationship restoration. Through the resurrection, Christ achieved restoration of creation and also of relationships. And he also brought in a new shalom, a wonderful word which talks about justice and peace and unity. He brought a new shalom into the structures of the whole of society. And it's this time that we're living in now. And so it means that in our relationships now, those relationships that we thought about the beginning, those relationships between husbands and wives, those relationships between brothers and sisters, parents, children. It means we're meant to forgive as Christ has forgiven us. We're meant to love because Christ loved us first. It means there is equality. It means we serve others. It means we live out the fruits of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, self-control. If sin resulted in the breaking down of relationships, God's restoration plan in Christ must transform our relationships. And this is most beautifully summarized, I think, in Paul's declaration in Galatians 3, 26 to 28, where he says this, you are all sons and daughters of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Paul's teaching here too in Ephesians 5 on mutual submission really helps us to understand what this self-sacrificial love looks like. The whole of this passage in Galatians, 3 is fr Galatians 5 is framed uh, by the words of verse 21, where Paul says, submit to one another out of reverence to Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. When we love Christ as he first loved us, men and women live in mutual submission. We put the other first. We do those little things, those small acts of kindness in our relationships to help the other person. We put ourselves out. We look to serve, not seeking to be either in authority over or independent of each other, but rather needing each other. We need each other, don't we? We don't exercise power over each other, but we respect and we honour and we love each other. 
So then when we hear guidance like, wives, submit to your husband as to the Lord, we have to put that alongside instructions like, husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. These are both big and radical asks. Husbands are being told to love and to cherish at all times in a sacrificial way as Christ loves the church. It's about mutual submission and mutual dependence. This is not about oppression or power or dominant authority. Paul is espousing radical affirming relationships of Christ-like self-abandoning love and mutual submission. I found this uh, uh, amazing letter that was written to a a magazine in America recently. And I think it says something about this self-abandoning love. It says this. I'm going to tell you about a love story that I witness every time I go into the nursing home to see my husband, who has Alzheimer's disease. Unfortunately, I know firsthand how this terrible illness affects family members. But I, I would like the world to know what love really is. I see a man there who I understand has spent the last eight years caring for his wife, who has Alzheimer's. They've been married for over 50 years. He cooks and feeds her every bite of food she eats. He has bathed her and dressed her every day all these years. They have no family. She lost a baby at birth, and they've never had any more children. I cannot describe the tenderness and love that man shows for his wife. She's unable to recognize anyone, including him. The only thing she shows any interest in are two baby dolls. They're never out of her hands. I observed him when I parked my car beside his the other day. He sat in his old pickup truck for a few minutes, and then he patted down what little hair he had, straightened the threadbare collar of his shirt, and looked in the mirror for a final check before going in to see his wife. It was as if he were courting her. They have been partners all these years, and have seen each other under all kinds of circumstances and yet he carefully groomed himself before he called on his wife, who wouldn't even know him. And so secondly, in this new model of relationships, we see that there has to be mutual dependence. Christ is the source of the church. The church is completely dependent on him, aren't we? It cannot, we cannot be independent of him. There is a commitment between Christ and us, the church. And in the same way, there has to be a dependence and a commitment within a relationship, especially a married relationship, something which is particularly out of fashion at the moment. Uh, For about the last 50 years, probably younger, but I wouldn't know about that, there is this popular theory that we can do intimacy or we can do love without any sort of commitment. John and I uh, re-watched Four Weddings and a Funeral uh, last year. And I was reflecting that it was quite an accurate reflection on Western society's fear of commitment. During his best man's speech uh, at the first wedding, the lovely Charles, played by the equally lovely Hugh Grant, declares, I am, of course, in bewildered awe of anyone who can make a commitment like this. I am, of course, in bewildered awe of anyone who can make a commitment like this. And then at the end of the film, Charles, in a sort of non-proposal to his woman, Carrie, asks her to be his non-wife. They want the intimacy, they want the love without the commitment, the faithfulness, the mutual dependence. My grandma cared for my granddad through 12 really quite tough years of Parkinson's. And essentially, she had to give up everything to do that. 
During the last few years, it was only every so often that we would get glimpses of my granddad and she would get glimpses of the man she had met, the man who had wooed her, who'd waited outside the shop she worked in to give her some flowers one day, the man who had courted her and loved her and provided for her. And yet it was her commitment that meant she was faithful to him in sickness and in health, and it held their marriage together, their relationship together to the end. Love needs commitment, faithfulness, and mutual dependence. So let's continue to explore what Paul says about mutual dependence in Ephesians 5. In verse 23, we hear this, that the husband is head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. The understanding of this word head or headship has caused all sorts of problems over the centuries. And you might think of something like the picture on the screen. What does it even mean for someone to be the head of somebody else? I heard quite an amusing and slightly shocking story about three guys uh, that were talking in a pub. Two of them were talking about the amount of control that they had over their wives, whilst the third remained very quiet. After a while, one of the first two turns to the third and says, well, what about you? You know, what sort of control do you have over your wife? And the third man sort of turns slightly uneasily and says, well, I'll tell you. Um, just the other night, my wife came to me on her hands and knees. And the first two guys were amazed, slightly impressed, uh, and said, wow, what happened next? And the third man took a gulp of his ears, beer, he sighed and he muttered, she said, get out from under the bed and fight like a man. <laughs> <laughs> We often bring our understanding of this word head, as in head teacher, head of a business, head of a government, to this passage. But is Paul really talking about a husband being the boss, the decision maker, the one in charge? I have friends who take this view of the man being in charge in their marriage. And when I ask what this looks like in practice, they always talk about how if they're at a stalemate and they can't agree on something, a big decision, the man might need to overrule or make a decision on behalf of them both. That's what it means for them, for the man to be ahead. But when I push that a little bit further and say, well, when has this actually happened? We've never seen this. They've never seen this. And in fact, I've never seen it successfully in action in a healthy marriage. In Hebrew and Greek thought, being the head of something has nothing to do with being in charge or making decisions. Because this idea of making decisions or being in, in charge was not to do with the head, but was to do with the heart. They use the language of the heart. And when we look at this Greek word for head, kephale, it's used throughout the New Testament, and it's best interpreted in English as source like the source of a river or the head of a river. In this way, if Christ is the source of the church and God is the head of Christ, that would mean that Christ is the source, the origin of the church, and God is the source of Christ. There's also a connotation of service within this word too, as Christ is the servant of the church. Jesus is the source, the servant of the church. We cannot live without him. We are dependent on him. And so based on this structure, when a husband is spoken of as the head of his wife, it indicates that he is the source and the servant of the wife, not the lord over or in charge of his wife. 
And wives are reminded that we cannot be independent of our husbands, but there is a mutual dependence born out of love for each other and a love for Christ. Remember how radical this was in first century Ephesus, where on the one hand, this town Ephesus was dominated by this uh, temple to the goddess Artemis, and women were being used as temple prostitutes, but also there was a distorted cultish female leadership going on within that temple. And then on the other hand, the, the traditional Jewish Adam and Eve patriarchal household structure was still prominent everywhere. And here was Paul proclaiming radical new relationships based on self-abandoning love and mutual sub submission. Submit to one another out of reverence to Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Love your wife as you love your own body. He who loves his wife loves himself. We're called to radical Christ-like relationships. <coughs> Why? Not so that God can spoil our fun or limit our freedom, but so that we can firstly live in the fullness of life and love and relationships that God designed for us and Jesus bought for us through the cross. But also so that there is a context for mission for the church to be effective. Our relationships then should be Christ-like. And as a consequence, they should point people to Jesus. They should show others what Jesus' love for them is like, that sacrificial, self-abandoning love. And so with all that in mind, let's pause a moment and think about those relationships that we thought about at the beginning. Think about your husband or your wife, a close friend, your parents, children, nephews, nieces. Are we living out this self-abandoning love? In what ways can we be, it be less about me and more about you? How can I be kind in those relationships? Where can I be gentle? Where do I need some self-control? Where can I give time and attention? Where do I need to rein myself in and live in mutual submission to someone else? Do I actually just need to fully submit myself to God and allow him to be Lord of every part of my life?